And then the confirmation has come about. So here we go. February the 9th, 2020. Boy, that freaks me out. Lecture discussion number 91. You've got to be kidding, but that's what we have here. On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. You might not think that that's all one book, but I'm making the case that, of course, that's the case. And I'll throw in Judges 19, 20, 21 here at the end of this. So, Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. And we are back. Hi, Internet people. It was kind of difficult, uh, this lecture. I didn't know for sure where to begin. I didn't know what to do this week. I've got lots of possible directions. All of them, I think, are extraordinary and wonderful. And, uh, and each one seems to be isolated from the others, though all of you know that all scriptural paths converge. All of them. There's none that don't. Anyway, my preference turned out to be dark matter. Whoops. That's this guy. Or it might be that one. Go ahead and mute. Uh, what is that? You muted them all. Okay. Well, you can't mute that one. That's the sound for the Internet. Nope. Nope. So are you back in operation then? Okay. Look at how smooth this we are here. Technologically, we're fantastic. You can never even tell. Yes. Anyway, dark matter. That's my preference. Uh, return to the dark matter theory. Uh, you may ask why in a minute, but I'm going to explain it to you. Dark matter... Uh, being the invisible substance. That is important because that is a biblical principle. Dark matter is the invisible substance that is impossible to detect. That is the scientific phrase that is put to dark matter. And I know immediately such a statement or a definition should give rise to skepticism, if not even derision. Uh, but the scientific academics are impervious to derision, so uh, it's a waste of effort, uh, digression. You see, the astrophysicists have implied the existence of the invisible substance that is impossible to detect. Because primarily, there is this unexplainable gravitational phenomenon. And so they have to have an invisible substance that is impossible to detect. And that's, uh, and that's why your somewhat mostly beloved, highly trained re religious professional is drawn to dark matter. Got that? Drawn? Attracted? Pulled in? Gravitational? I, if I have to explain it, it's not nearly as funny. Still funny, but not nearly. And I obsess, as you know, over gravitational effects. Especially the ones that have no explanation at all. And they are of particular interest because of all the problems they cause. And which is why and how the theory of dark matter originated, because the construction of the universe is a mystery. That's the creation, and it is a mystery. The theories of gravity are incomplete. They do not provide a workable solution to what is observable, as opposed to what is invisible, or seen instead of unseen. So they have no explanation for the scene. 
And the mathematics of gravitational force is such that the galaxies should not be stable. They should be disassembling themselves, exploding, flying apart, casting themselves asunder. And they are not doing that. And the mathematics, again, of gravitational theories, the gravitational force, is that they should be doing it. There is not enough gravity. So the cosmologists and the astrophysicist community concocted dark matter to solve the problem. The invisible substance that is impossible to detect. And I love that. I can't stop saying it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wonder what the invisible substance that's impossible to detect could actually be. But I get ahead of myself. But they've done the invisible substance that is impossible to detect in order to explain the unexplainable gravitational effects. Gravitational wave theory is something they've done recently. They expect to find gravitational, wave theory, or gravitational waves, and they've trumpeted that they have found them. Maybe they have. I doubt it. Essentially, the accepted view, though there are those who dissent, I, I like the dissenters, the skeptics, is that dark matter is matter. See, there you go. This is why you pay me the big money right here. Maybe it's matter. Or at least some kind of matter, and that it's 85% of all matter in the universe. I should add that there's dark energy to go with dark matter. Ah, can't spell today. Okay, that's not a very good G. As I've gotten older, I've noticed my handwriting is completely disintegrating. And just, uh, I just can't even read what I'm doing. I should go into the medical field. I need a, ah, I might. The front row is particularly filled up today. None of them will come back, especially one. Which one is that? <laughs> anyway, I should tell you that dark matter and dark energy comprise of, uh, they comprise 95% of mass energy is what it's called in the technical term. So we're going to need to investigate dark energy as well. And everybody say we. Yeah, that's right. It'll be lots of fun. But so far today, all we do today, all that's necessary is for us uh, to be aware that the dark matter, though overwhelmingly accepted, is in conflict with general relativity. Much to the chagrin of the self-declared wise. The wise among us say that all of this is the case, even though it is in conflict with general relativity. And general relativity, as you know, is not yet reconciled with quantum physics, and nor do I ever expect it to be so. And in addition, in addition, sorry, recently they have discovered, or believe they have discovered, the possibility at least, they think they have found two, they've even named them, the possibility of galaxies that do not have dark matter. They are devoid of the invisible substance that is impossible to detect. There is nothing there. And if this becomes verifiable, and it's not yet verifiable, it's just in the initial stages, well then, oops. 
The origin theories of galaxies that prevail in current ivory towers will have to be reevaluated. The ivory, ivory towers will go humpty dumpty. Boom shakalakalaka. And don't expect retractions. No, no. Not from these guys. The evolutionary atheists are very nimble. They will never issue a retraction because the consequences of the reality can never be spoken. And I bring all this up because I find it to be great funner. As I define funner. But also these subjects resolved to Romans 119. Through 25. So you have to ask yourself the concept of invisibility. It's in the Bible. Invisibility is in the Bible, actually worded. Romans 1 19 through 25. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Seen. You can see the invisible. So what Romans 1, 19, 25 says, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and his divine nature, because although they knew God, they would not glorify him, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's Romans 1, 19 through 25. Even though he is clearly seen, he is invisible. There's terrific questions now come flying at you, hit you right in the forehead. And also, we should note the importance of being truly wise. True wisdom as opposed to delusional wisdom, though that's a contradiction in phrase. What is it to be truly wise? The Bible tells us what it is. I'm fascinated by the effort required to deny the existence of intelligence by the cosmological astrophysics community, a scientific community completely, they will not say that this was an intelligent agency. This was consciousness. Not all of them. Max Planck, my hero, did. But they, don't, they do not see intelligence or consciousness in the creation. Or at least if they do, they will deny it because they cannot accept the reality again. And the work necessary, the invention of mathematically absurd con concepts, all for the sake of rationalizing atheism. And the emotional furor which these fantastical abstractions are then defended. It, they are angry. Anything begins to unravel, anybody pushes back against them and they are hateful. It is not a rational discussion. I saw a video recently of a university student screaming at people who had a differing political position, just screaming, completely out of control. I have witnessed that firsthand. These discussions are never benign. They are filled with tremendous amounts of emotion. And that is almost always the case in academic biology, for example. Now, to be fair, both atheism and religions have demonstrated rigidity. Sects. I have to spell that because I have an over-enlarged tongue. Cults, if you will, as well. Cults are those that have no deity of Christ's position. That's your Laodicean Church of Revelation 3.16. But these religious groups that have risen up, some of them very old, 
They uh, control through force. They force control. The fact that they want control. See, most of the time you will find that control and force are inseparable. And you should ask why. There are political entities that do this. We have one in this country that seeks to control by force. Now, they accuse the other side of seeking to control by force, but the other side is heavily armed. That is not going to work. At least I don't think so in my lifetime. But we shall see. The truth, though, is Romans 1.17. That famous verse. The just shall live by faith. Live. As God defines living. Faith. The just shall live by faith. It's never a control through force system in the Bible. It's not a works-based system, Romans 4, 1 through 5. But instead, it is the offered, extended hand of God. That's the truth. The grace of God, who is the God of grace. That's the truth. Salvation, the giving of life, is a belief system. It's never, it will never be a works system. Which one's the greatest? If I made a list of works and grace, how many are on the list of works side? It's uncountable. There is, do you believe him, he asks, 11, John 11, 25. That's what Christ asked. He doesn't say, have you done something for me? Because you can't do something for him. Do you believe me, John eleven twenty five? Believe there is no coercion in the truth of Christ. It stands alone in this regard. It's the only one like this in all of the history of man. Nothing else is like the standing alone of the grace of God. The salvation of God. Which in itself should be enough to demonstrate its veracity. We should expect that the primary attribute of that which is from God, truly from God, the truth, the wisdom, that which is from God is going to be singular. It's going to stand completely and totally alone. And the just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17, is the only one like that. All others, all the counterfeits employ imposition. They, they employ compulsion through force, threat, violence, burden. They place incredible burdens on the people that they say have to go through their system in order to be saved. That is not what Christ says. Do you believe me? Is what he says. And I used to say regularly in the past, if you could do one thing in the New Testament, study the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 1 through 36. Spend your time reading what a Pharisee is until you got it. Jesus Christ, the God himself revealed, he is the invisible God made visible. Says so, Colossians 1.15. He exposes the characteristics of the works-based religions and governments. So identify what the Pharisees did and taught, because Christ does it in Matthew 23, 1 through 36. Figure out what they taught and their willful blindness 
And then you go and do the exact opposite of that. Strive to do none of that. There's a blueprint for you to be none of this. None of that should be in your belief system at all, ever. And once you have the apostasies of the Pharisees in hand, now you get to explore invisibility. Because the great question is, is you have to solve invisibility. Why is there any invisibility? But there is invisibility. Why? Why is there this intended invisibility? What is accomplished by the invisibility of God? And all your verses, I have to watch my time a bit here. John 4.24, Colossians 1.15. After you read Matthew 23, 1-36, now go to Colossians 1.15, where you understand the truth of Christ and what he has done. John 4.24, Colossians 1.15, Matthew 6. What's Matthew 6? Do not be like a who. That's not a Dr. Seuss book. Be not, be, do not be like a Pharisee who prays in front of people. Stop it. Go into your secret room where God is in secret, where he is invisible. Don't be one of these people. This is why I talk about things like thoughts and consciousness or mental processes. The mind, the soul, the spirit, life itself, the life force itself, I just recently said, is invisible. You can find what it does, but you can't find it in the human body. The soul, the spirit, invisible, all unseen. Faith is invisible. Belief, prayer. Unseen. Why does he do with this gravity? Invisible. That's why it's my favorite. I do not think that dark matter is the invisible material that cannot be seen. Obviously. I'm making the point that what it is is not a what, it's a who. Again, not a Dr. Seuss reference for those of you. We're easily distracted. He tells you that he is invisible. Why? One of the biggest complaints is why doesn't God show himself to me? I get that all the time. Well, he explains that to you in Romans. 119. is where it starts. So, figure out a Pharisee and don't do that. They will give you a workspace system all the time. Solve invisibility. Why is he invisible? I gave you the uh, list of reasons, didn't I? One of them was will. Another is consciousness. Now we move on really quickly because everything I do here is really quick. Why did someone laugh? <laughs> Loud enough to make the internet. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number. What's the number? You all know the number because you've seen the movies. Never get your doctrine from Hollywood no matter what you do. They are idiots. Can I say that strong enough? 
you talk about self-absorbed. Uh, there recently was a comedian that just tore them to pieces and he didn't do a f- complete job. He should have called me. There is nothing more worthless than the entertainment media in this country. We worship fools. And it is stunning that the church does that. That anybody does it. Um, I wish that the church never did it. But we can't stop them. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So we're trying to find wisdom. Here's wisdom. Here's a wisdom test again. The number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. Here's wisdom. Calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man. His number is 666. And that is the final verse of Revelation 13. The first verse of Revelation 13 is Revelation 13.1. Wow, yeah. My gosh. Money will be pouring in from the internet. By pouring, I mean none. Revelation 13.1 reveals that Satan beckons the beast from the abyss. You will read your Bible and you will think John is standing on the shore calling up the Antichrist. Or seeing the Antichrist come out of the abyss. But that's not the context. That The 13.1 reveals that Satan beckons the beast from the abyss. What's the first question? How did the beast get into the abyss? And what is the beast? The beast has an aspect of humanity. He's a man. How did a man get into the abyss? That's your first question. And again, many, many translations render 13.1 as, Then I stood on the sand. But it should read, you should correct it, it should read that he stood on the sand, referring to the dragon of Revelation 12, 13 through 17. Revelation 12, 13 through 17 is what? Yes, you're right again. It's Michael, where the angelic hosts battle Satan's forces in a war. The forces of Michael finally defeat, drive out the army of Satan, the dragon, the war in heaven, Revelation 12. And after that event, Satan goes and stands on the shore and calls out. He's thrown to the earth and he knows that his time is short. And it's time for the Antichrist to come out of the abyss and reunite. And there is the reason that he's doing this, Revelation 13.1. And to repeat, it is wisdom to know that the Antichrist is a man. His number is the number of a man, 666. And John obviously saw this aspect to be crucial information. This is wisdom. So you can self-evaluate. Self-evaluation, self-assessment is gone in our society. But here's a chance for you, all of us, to practice it. Do you know that the Antichrist is a man? So reach around and go like this. Do you understand 666? It is wisdom if you know that. John saw this to be crucial. Why? 
And who's he talking to? Who's the audience for the book of Revelation? At the time of the Antichrist. Well, who's in the tribulation? What is John? He's a Jew. The Antichrist has human attributes. And the tribulational Jews need to know that. Quick question. How did he become, how did the Antichrist end up with human structures? By what process? I'll give you a clue. Genesis 3.15. Just asking. Daniel 12.10, as you know, says, None of the wicked will understand the book of Daniel. Only the wise are going to understand Daniel. So if you understand the book of Daniel, and again, it's not being able to recite the components. It's knowing what the book of Daniel means. What all these components, when you put them together, what do they mean? How are they testifying of Christ? And again, there is this feathering. There is this connectivity between the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. Daniel was to be sealed. Revelation was to be unsealed. So they work together. And only the wise are going to understand Daniel, which means only the wise are going to understand Revelation because it takes both of them to understand either. And you throw in Joel and Ecclesiastes. What does Ecclesiastes have to do with all of this? Invisibility. Why is God invisible? Now, God, Christ, is the invisible made visible. But why can't we see the entirety of the triune Godhead? So we ultimately have two subjects through which we can judge ourselves. The book of Daniel and the mystery of the man of iniquity. This is one of the mysteries, uh, the, the man of sin. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that wisdom is given. No one know is given. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11. Meaning that the Holy Spirit teaches us the mysteries. This is one of the eleven mysteries. It's the eighth one. And John is saying to those in the tribulation, it's critical that you know that mystery. You know something about the Antichrist. Now, it'd be nice if we knew something. But there is a difference between the bride and the wife. Get to that in a minute. We're headed towards Judges 19, aren't we? The Holy Spirit teaches us the hidden things. 1 Corinthians 2.13. We are commanded to be stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. In other words, the Christians, the church, is commanded to know all the mysteries and know what they mean and know what order they're in and know why they are mysteries. And if your name is Steward, well, then yes, you should know this. And, and here at... It is required that the stewards be found faithful. I just thought I'd point that out, uh, just in case they haven't beaten it in enough. <laughs> I have not lived up to the uh, to the martyr Stephen at all, so don't don't feel like I'm ahead of you. Here at Revelation 13:18, Daniel 12:10, we find the mystery of the man of sin. If you look at what Daniel is talking about it is the abomination of desolation in Daniel 12, among other places in Daniel. 
And we find the mystery of the man of sin, the eighth mystery. Only the wise will know this mystery. Why is this one, the eighth one, so crucial? And again, Revelation and Daniel are framed in a tribulational context. They are talking about the tribulation predominantly, especially in Revelation from after uh, verse 4-1. Church, 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 Revelation 1 through 3, and then at Revelation 4-1, that's the end of the mention of the church until it comes with Christ. The rest of the time now, it's Israel, 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 Israel. So, who's going to know this? Who needs to know it? Only the wise will know it. And so we have the obvious question, which is obvious. Who did John and Daniel expect would be reading their prophecies? Especially Daniel. Who did Daniel think would be reading the book of Daniel? You think the Gentiles? The reason the Jews got got dispersed was because they hated the Gentile. Who would see the things of Daniel and the things of Revelation? Who would witness it? Who needs to know the eighth mystery? Which leads us to the question of the wife of YHVH and the bride of Christ and the 144,000. Because Israel disappears. We know that. Israel has disappeared. Guess who else disappears? The bride disappears. Are you surprised that Israel, the wife, would disappear and the bride of Christ would disappear? You shouldn't be surprised. The patterns are always the same. And that would absolutely make sense. Both will disappear and then both will what? Reappear. That's right. Israel has essentially was gone from 586 B.C., At least 586 B.C. is the general accepted date. The Assyrians predated the Babylonians. The Assyrians took the northern tribes of Israel, 722 to 720. The Babylonians destroyed the first temple in 586 B.C. And Israel began to disappear. The second temple period began with the Persian decree. That's the proclamation of Cyrus around so 515, maybe 520. So that's Nehemiah coming back, right, to build the second temple. Alexander the Great shows up in 332. That's the Hellenistic period. And the Jews are under subjugation again. Uh, The Romans come, Pompey, General Pompey, he seizes Jerusalem. He establishes Herod. Herod is around a long time. We know he gets there, they say, uh, 4 B.C., before Herod was gone. And the second temple, Herod remade, he refurbished it would be the right thing. He made it magnificent, unbelievable. They loved the Herod temple, the Herodian temple. And the Jews ultimately decided to revolt against the Romans, if you know history, and they're slaughtered. The second temple is destroyed. That's Titus 70 A.D. And we have the massacre at Masada at 73 A.D. Millions of Jews are killed. That's why the book of Hebrews is written by Paul to the Jews that are not in Jerusalem. He's telling them, don't go to Jerusalem. There will be a slaughter, a great slaughter. Millions. And and Israel pretty much at that point is lost as a nation. It disappears. Crusades notwithstanding. There is no Israel. You make the case 586, you make the case 720, you can make the case 63, uh, you can make the case or BC, you can make the case 70 AD, 73 AD. But Israel disappears. 
And then what happens next? The Ottomans come through and, and Israel is overrun. The Jews are dispersed all over the world. Ask yourself why. But there is no nation of Israel and the British come and we have the Balfour Declaration, Foreign Minister Balfour, 1917. And that marked the end of the Ottoman Empire. What's left of the Ottoman Empire? Turkey, pretty much. Ataturk. And then we have, to keep the timeline going, Harry Truman in 1948, who, as I said recently, he is the Koresh of our generation. He's identified himself as Cyrus. I am Cyrus, he said. He reestablished Israel single-handedly. He believed. I think there's some merit to that. And Israel returns, 1948, some say 1949, by their books. Okay, don't. They've been wrong. They made lots of money. The point being, Israel, the wife of God, disappeared and returned. And you have seen the return of the wife of God in your lifetime, which is unbelievable. And you should rejoice that you have got to see this. You didn't see her disappear, but you have seen the wife return. And the bride likewise will disappear and return. And thus we have the most significant of the significant questions. Why this return and dis- disappear and reappear? Why? Why, does he, why is he doing this with the church and with Israel? We have the bones prophecy of Ezekiel that will help you explain at least Israel. But you should be able to explain both. It is wisdom. Why is it necessary for Israel to be essentially gone as a nation and then return as a nation? And why is it necessary for the church to be gone as an entity and return as an entity? The answer to that question incorporates 144,000 of Revelation 7, 4 through 8. Have I lost anybody yet? Because I've been working hard. should have all of you completely drooling and passed out by now. I have more, more, more to go. But again, the answer to the question of why they are gone and reappear and disappear or disappear and appear, whatever, uh, is 144,000 of Revelation 7, 4 through 8. When you read those 12 tribes, there's 12,000 from each tribe. What's the problem? It's a math problem. 144,000 is 12,000 times 12. But it doesn't work. Because there's only 144,000. The tribe of Dan is missing in Revelation 7, 4 through 8. Why is Dan missing? What happened to Dan? I keep burping or something here. Are you checking to see if I can have any of that? Can I? No. You sure? What is it? French onion soup. How much sodium is it? Very low. It's got to be less than 100 milligrams. Okay. I need to know these things. It motivates me to keep going. There's something here I can eat. You know, I can't have the cheese. I've got to make sure my magnesium is above my calcium. Two to one ratio. Everyone knows that that has AFib. Okay, where was I? 
as a professional, I'll find it. John identifies in Revelation 7 the 12 tribes, but the nation of Dan or the tribe of Dan is missing because there's 13 tribes. Why is there 13 tribes? Do you know, do you know, do you know? Well, there are. Joseph has something to do with that. So why is Dan missing? You'll find out that tribes are left out all the time. Why is that happening? They always list 12. But there should be a good reason. And John identifies in Revelation 7 these 12 tribes, leaves out Dan, and then he identifies the Gentiles, Revelation 7, 9 through 17. So first, the twelve tribes, and then immediate to that is the Gentiles. This great multitude of Revelation 7, 9 through 17. And that explains the purpose of the 144,000 Jews who are from Israel, who are taken out of Israel, and they're sealed. They can't be killed. There's 144,000 of them, and I've said that they are now finally Fulfilling the original responsibility of the nation. And they're doing it in the tribulation. They are teaching the truth of Christ. So there's this great multitude there. And that multitude obviously comes from who? Who? That multitude is at the throne of Christ and they are saved. But they are martyred. How did they get saved? 144,000. And that explains why the church disappears and reappears and Israel disappears and reappears. Okay, finally now we return to Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Today specifically, Judges 21. And first I should read a portion of what I would call the typical cliffside letter. And it's from Savage Tinker Toy, who also is Sherry. And we think Sherry is somewhere in the United States now, but she called herself, she said she's in the hillbilly caravan. I don't know that that's true anymore, but they would, they would had a motor home and they followed, a, a, I think uh, they were involved with pipeline lane. But I think maybe now she is in Indiana or Illinois. She told me once, who remembers? I'm old. So she writes a short letter. Okay. As she defines short. So let me just try to do this justice. Because it's incredible. And again, it's the typical cliffside letter personified. Goodness me. Has it really been three months since the last time I bugged you? Well then, I shall take a break from these busy days and send you my usual barrage of madness. Which I wouldn't do if you weren't so weird. Where to start? The woman cut into twelve pieces. Could it be her blood was taken? Genetic material is in the blood. Life is in the blood. Bloodless tissue and the marks to be removed, to remove blood would be evident in the whole body. But how could she make it to the threshold without blood? The cart said the pineal gland is the seat of the soul. Could it be the blood or more, or more likely also in the blood? Probably we're completely infused with the soul somehow. Of course, I've run into a few snags with my theory, like blood transfusions. 
While you may be giving somebody life in the sense, it would also mean that you're giving your soul. And if you cut yourself, then your soul would be leaking out. So that can't be right. But there's something about the blood that makes me think of the soul. Anyway, that's fun to think about. Speaking of souls, because the mind and the brain are utter fascinating to me. I'm reading an article on optogenetics. I have to stop there. Can't read all of it. I hope you get the drift. It's amazing. You should come and read it. Sherry goes further into the autonomic nervous system, the neuron interface, the ganglia, optogenetics, electromagnetic fields, entanglement, gargoyles and nephilim and geopolitical instability. And she ends with this, which is my favorite. I guess that'll do for now. (laughs) Good luck with this mess. I gotta go. Keep it weird, friends. P.S. I'm gonna go and eat some bacon. Enjoy your walnuts. (laughs) Much love, Sherry. That's just a fantastic letter. And I said it's a perfect example of a cliffside letter. I'm just amazed at the the abilities and the intelligence and the and just the curiosity of the people that listen to these lectures, both of you. Okay. What did we went over how much uh, where are we at now? We over hundred and forty thousand in Sermon Auto? Yeah, um, for those of you who think Dave exists or maybe doesn't, he said we had thirty eight hundred people on Sermon Audio alone, that just one platform. So and all of them write letters just like that. I, I just don't even know what to say. It's it's incredible. Okay, for today, we're going to go back to Judges 19, 20 and 21, which is a mistake. Why is it a mistake? Because I've left out 17 and 18. Ooh, 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 I did it on purpose to confuse you. And, but there is an entirety here. 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. The narrative is only really resolved if all five chapters are included and properly assigned. And to repeat the principle, there is an occurrence in Judges 19. It's the murder of a woman. And it's traceable to a cause. Well, the cause has to be 17 and 18. It is one of the great mysteries of murder mysteries ever recorded. So we must do what any detective would do. You have to establish the anatomy in order to find out the motive, not just the motive. We know the, the offending party, but the motive is difficult and the method is difficult. Thank you. I see you back there. So what do we know so far to repeat a little bit to recap? We know that the woman was murdered by the sons of Belial. Who is this woman and why did the sons of Belial murder her and who are the sons of Belial? We've covered some of that. The sons of Belial didn't didn't want, they didn't seek out the woman. They wanted the Levite master. They wanted the husband of the woman. So I have, and she is, the woman is a harlot. So I have a harlot wife of a Levite master. So who's that? I have the wife of God being portrayed here. And she is murdered by the sons of Belial. So this is Israel. At least get that far today. The sons of Belial murder 
Israel. And we know the sons of Belial are attached to Satan at Deuteronomy 13.13 and 2 Corinthians 6.15. They are called bloodthirsty rebels, 2 Samuel 16.7 and 2 Samuel 21. 20, verse 1. So these are bloodthirsty people. That's back to Sherry's letter. Why are they bloodthirsty? What are they after? They spill a lot of blood. And obviously, at Judges 19 and 20, they are powerful people, and they are exceedingly wicked. And they plundered the harlot wife of the master in such a way that the evil was the great wickedness of Sodom, Genesis 13, 13, and Genesis 6, which is the mutation, the contamination of all animals and humans that God brought flood. Only Noah was uncontaminated. It says Noah was found righteous, but the word, as you know, is tamen. Noah was found tamen, which means he was not contaminated. So, Judges 19, Genesis 6, Judges, or 13, Genesis 13, 13. The surrounding. Every piece of her body, because the, the Levite master she made it to the door and collapsed. She was still alive after she was plundered. She made it back to the threshold. And her master found her and loaded her up and took her to his place. Carried her home. And he cut her into 12 pieces because there's 13 tribes. You get that? But he cut her into 12 pieces and sent a piece to every tribe as evidence of what was done to her. And so we have her, the, every piece of her body testified of the evil that was, was perpetrated. And the biggest question is, why was this done to her? For what motive? Who did it? And what is the evidence that this was done? So now we're going to read a little bit, or reread more than anything else. And I've got to go really fast. Okay. have to take my glasses. I do not have a pair of glasses now that works for me at all. Lori wears two pairs of glasses. She has one pair, and then she puts another pair over that pair. And we have photographic evidence of this. On the internet. I know you're not alone in doing that, dear. It's still weird. (laughs) Anyway. Let's just knock out a few of these. We'll start in uh, uh, Revelation 20. I'm not sorry. I'm I'm not uh, Revelation. Judges 20. Because we're going to do Judges 21. We've covered the what happened in 19 a little bit. So let's go. uh, Let's start at verse 20, verse 12. We'll pick up little pieces of it. Then the tribes of Israel sent men. They looked at this evidence and they said, oh, my gosh, this is no evil has ever been like this before in all of Israel's history. This is the worst evil since Sodom and since Genesis six. 
Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the sons of Belial, who are in Jebeah, that we may put them to death and remove this evil from Israel. But the children of of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of the brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities of Jebeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. I'm skipping down to 17. Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord God said, Judah first. Skip down to 21. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Jebeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line to place where they had put themselves in array on that first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord God that evening because they didn't expect to be massacred. And again, there were, there were uh, 700 uh, select sons of Belial who were ambidextrous and could throw a stone and hit a hair. So those sons of Belial wiped out the tribe of, of the infantry of Judah. And Israel wept and they went before the Lord. He says, uh, what should we do? He said, go up against them again. And they go up again. And 18,000 are killed. The implication is that none of Benjamin was killed. So this is a, not a fair fight. So who are these sons of Belial? I'll skip down to verse 35. The Lord, eventually God says, go up tomorrow and I'll deliver them into your hand. And so on the third day, that's a shock, huh? They were able to prevail. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites, all those who drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel, how did God interfere? Who do you think he attacked? And how did he do it? Remember, I have 700 sons of Satan. How did they get killed? So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set up against at Jebeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Jebeah. So if you figure out this, here comes Israel. They show themselves. They are attacked because the Benjamites and the sons of Belial know we're going to kill all of these guys. But there was another group hidden and that they rushed in behind and they went into the city. That's what happened. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Jebeah, and the men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword, killed everybody. Killed them all. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereby the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30. 30? They only killed 30. I want to know who those 30 are. And why did they get killed? They've been killing tens of thousands. This time they only killed 30. Something has changed. Why on the third day has it changed? 
Let me find my place again. And kill about 30 of the men of Israel. For they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city, a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them. And there there was a whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. How did they know it was disaster? Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And whoever came out of the cities rounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Jebeah towards the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. And all of these were men of valor, the exact same terminology used in Genesis 6. Then they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Raman. Raman. And 600 men ultimately survived it. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities they came to. So they literally extinguished the tribe of Benjamin. And now we can start 21. How am I doing? Now, the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us will give a daughter to Benjamin as a wife. That's an oath. This was the extinguishment, the extermination of Benjamin. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Oh, Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So they come up with a plan. So they wept before because they were killed. Now they're weeping because they're killing the Benjamites. There's only 600 Benjamites left. Benjamin is on the precipice of extinction. Obviously, they deserved it. They participated in a vile wickedness, likely for an extended period of time. They defended the people that killed the wife of the man. They had killed the harlot wife. What was done with the harlot of the master was without doubt a long-standing practice. Because they had been doing this for a while. In my view. Now, what they do is they come up with a plan. They say, did anybody not make the oath? Well, yeah, somebody didn't make the oath. Who didn't make the oath? Jabesh Gilead didn't make the oath. Jabesh Gilead didn't show up at Mizpah and make the oath. So they decide, let's go kill them. So that's what they do. They went and killed the all of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and the children. Utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. The only ones they saved were the virgins. And they came up with 400. But I got 600 men. It's not going to work. Math doesn't go. So what do we do next? How do we solve this? We've got to have another 200. So they go to Shiloh. Actually, they didn't go to Shiloh. They knew Shiloh was going to do something at, the, at a feast day. So here we go. Let me read this. So um, They're grieving for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribe of Israel. 
And they said, so what we're going to do here is we know that Shiloh is going to bring their young girls out. These are young girls. They're going to bring them out in this, in this yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem on the south of Lebanon. Okay, that's a lot of detail there in case you didn't know what happened and where it was. That becomes an important question. And they tell the children of the men of Benjamin that didn't have a wife, you go hide and you kidnap these daughters. And then they go to Shiloh because what, what did Shiloh do? They're going to go kill the guys that stole their daughters. And they say, listen, don't do it or we'll kill you. We didn't kill you. We could kill you. You leave them alone. So they threatened them with war if they attacked the men who stole their daughters. That's what happened. That was the solution to all of this. Israel killed all of Benjamin, the women, the children, the animals. Why did they kill all of Benjamin? Compared to the rejection of Saul. God rejects Saul for not doing something. What did it? What is it that he didn't do? By the went all that way, all those words. I'm not allowed to say by the way. You wouldn't know that because you're flying a helicopter somewhere. Are you flying a helicopter? Why not? What's wrong with you? Helicopters are cool. Lots of fun. You just have an airplane. She has an airplane. So do you. You have an airplane too, don't you? You both have airplanes. How superior to the rest of us do you feel? (laughs) A lot. Saul, the first king of Israel, what is he? He's a Benjamite. Where is he from? Jebeah, the very place that the harlot of the master is murdered. And he, in 1 Samuel 15, does not eradicate the evil of the Amalekites. What's that tell you? There's a whole lot of people needing annihilating. What's going on here? Not just the women and the children, but the animals. Kill them all. Saul won't do it. Didn't do it. Why not? He's a Benjamite from Jebeah. Clearly there's a time of sophisticated evil and contamination going on here. Genesis 6, 9. Noah was not contaminated. Why does Israel grieve for Benjamin? They're incredibly evil. Why did they go to these extraordinary means to effectively circumvent their oath uh, to the Lord God of creation? They said, none of us will give Benjamin. We're going to exterminate them. Then they changed their mind. How do they change their mind? They kill the, the people at Jabesh Gilead, take 400 of their women, and then kidnap 200 more. That's their plan. Does the omniscient Lord God of creation know what he's doing when he says exterminate these people? This is an extinction event. Notice the words uh, omniscient and know in the same sentence. Why did they go to these extraordinary means? Why did God allow Israel to murder the people of Jabesh Gilead? Do you feel sorry for the people of Jabesh Gilead? Never raise your hand here. Why did he allow Israel to murder the people of Jabesh Gilead in order to save the tribe of Benjamin from extinction? If they let those men just die, 
There is no Benjamin and we're down to 12 tribes. We're going to fight for this 13th tribe. Let's put the number 13 up here for you. Go to Bollinger's book on number numerology and see what it means. Is Was Jabesh Gilead innocent or guilty? Did they deserve? Jabesh Gilead abstained from taking the, the oath. Did they deserve death for doing that? If they're innocent, this event was the death of innocence commingled with the deaths of the guilty. And I know I have innocence because I have animals and children. Or did, is it possible, is it likely, does the information tell us that Jabesh Gilead allied themselves with Benjamin? And that's why they didn't take the oath. And if they allied themselves with Benjamin, if it is the latter, why would Benjamin protect, put, I'm sorry, why would Benjamin protect the sons of Belial? And why would Jabesh Gilead enter into an alliance and not take the oath? Why did Saul tear an oxen into pieces and send the pieces throughout Israel in order to save Jabesh Gilead in 1 Samuel 11? Aha! There's your solution to all of this. Because that's what he does. And he's a Jebean Benjamite. He was the offspring of these 600 men that stole women and had the whole group killed in order to have children. There's this detailed location, north of Bethel, east side of the highway, south of Lebanon. What's that? Why is that location? Why this precision? What happened there in the past? Why were the young women dancing on that spot? What feast day is it that they're dancing? It's a feast day of the Lord. You've got seven choices. Pick one. If you're wrong, no food for you. Notice what Israel says to Shiloh again. We could have killed you, so shut up and take it. And all of this mess, this bizarre behavior ends with this phrase. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that phrase comes from what chapters 17 and 18? That's how Judges 17 and 18 are contextualized. And that is the context, is that phrase, everybody did whatever they wanted. There was no king in Israel. So, whoa, that's the point. Hooray, the point. Relative morality, secular humanism, as opposed to godly precepts, descends into madness. And what you're seeing here is madness on both sides. Everyone did whatever they wanted. There was no standard. There was no absolute truth. There was no goodness. Everyone did whatever they wanted. And you get madness. So, did you find Christ? I gave him to you a bunch of times. He's in the story. Got to be. There's pictures of Christ all throughout that. You should find them.